Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you all for coming. I will read, and then we'll talk, and then we'll go out drinking. It's a simple life. Um, this book is a little different from my other books. In many respects, one of them is that I have to, you know, set up my reading a little. Well, I never used to do that. And I always feel, think that I'll forget something, and then you will all be lost. So if there are questions in the middle of reading, of my reading, just raise your hand. We'll sort it out. Um, the main character in this book is one Joshua Levin. He lives in Chicago. Um, he his daytime job is teaching English as a second language, um, and his class is a particularly attractive Bosnian woman, Anna, um, who is also married and has a daughter. Meanwhile, on the other side of his life, he is an, a hapless screenwriter um, in this town, of course. You do not, I do not have to explain how uh, what a life of a hapless screenwriter might be like. Um, but he's going to a workshop, a rinky-dinky workshop in someone's living room, uh, where, which is also attended by a Bosnian named Bega. Um, who has his own ideas about America and, and screenwriting. And then Joshua lives in a building um, on the second floor of an apartment building on the first floor. Um, there lives his landlord, Stagger, who is insane. So much so that once after the workshop, after the, uh, Joshua went back home after the workshop, he found Stagger doing stuff. So he left in panic and moved in with his girlfriend, Kimiko, or Kimi, temporarily. So this is where we are. After a couple of a day of panic, he goes to work. There were seven students in Joshua's level five ESL class, and they sat there facing him like a jury that had already reached its grim verdict. In the far back row, as far from Joshua's dubious authority as they could get, sat Captain Ponomarenko and his rotund wife, Larissa. Captain Ponomarenko had been an officer of the KGB, unhappily decommissioned by the collapse of the USSR, and still resented the fact that America, the land of limp imbeciles, amply represented by teacher Josh, somehow managed to win the Cold War. He steadily aimed his barbed questions and contemptuous calls at teacher Josh, while the fair and larded Larissa endorsed whatever her husband was hatefully thinking. Presently, they were convinced that teacher Josh was personally and primarily responsible for the ongoing invasion of Iraq. I forgot to mention this is all taking place in the spring of 2003. They brought up the whole mess in nearly every class, and not at all because they cared about the Iraqis, let alone democracy or justice, but rather to expose the eternal rottenness of America's, America's imperialist soul. Accordingly, Joshua had become adept at changing the subject and pushing the class toward discussing the challenges they would face while acquiring, say, a fish tank. Then, there was a pair of heavily postmenopausal matryoshki who could not possibly care less about invadable distant lands or English grammar or anything at all, save for the intimidating presence of black people in their new country. The ladies never offered any thoughts, stories, or opinions that failed to reiterate their belief that African Americans were inherently criminal. The squad of the two, Yekaterina, had been blessed with having once heard of one black stealing a car door off its hinges, which provided her for, with a conversation topic for the rest of her natural life. There was Fyodor, an ex-rocket scientist prone to randomly quoting Dostoevsky in Russian, who had demanded that Joshua help, help him translate an old VHS player manual. Expertly egged on by Captain Soviet, he'd taken Joshua's claim that VHS was obsolete at the beginning of the new millennium as yet another instance of blind American selfishness. Then there was Varya, who, it had recently turned out, was ifly progressing through brutal chemotherapy. 
She'd been coming to class wearing a variable headscarf and sat always silent under the colorful map of Israel, all of which had misled teacher Josh into thinking she was orthodox. Only after he'd forced the class into one of those role-playing exercises whereby Captain Ponomarenko had become the doctor and Varya the patient had it come out that she'd been battling advanced ovarian cancer. Since teacher Josh could formulate no appropriate response to the immense fact of cancer, he would consequently find himself providing the medical vocabulary for the entire female genital area. He clumsily sketched a lily-shaped vagina on the board, discovering along the way that he was entirely oblivious to many of its parts and could not remember the words for others. The evil Ponomarenkos had kept nudging each other, chuckling either at his ignorance or at his embarrassment, likely both. The only bright light in all that post-Cold War darkness was Anna, she of the downcast eyes. A Bosnian in her late 30s, Anna was his best student by a long shot, not least because she kept away from the collective contempt of the whispering Russians, congenitally infected with Soviet malice. She used to study medicine, she'd said, adding a few small parts to the vagina floor plan, including a clitoris most impressively rendered as a large dot. She'd done it so unabashedly that Joshua thought up a pun, unabashedly, which often came to him whenever he laid eyes on her. And she was easy on the eyes, too. She was partial to knee-length skirts and cleavage-enhancing decolletage, her heels high enough to be sexy, never high enough to be slutty. Her fashion style, however, seemed wholly incongruous with indelible sorrow she constantly radiated, which Joshua found as compelling as her curves. One day, he'd given his students an assignment to write about their respective hometowns and read them aloud. The Ponomarenkos were from Vitebsk, a town barely worthy of a lazy paragraph. The Moscow Matryoshki drew a poor picture of the magnificent monuments built by Tsars and Bolsheviks. Varya was from Kazakhstan and wrote about the radiant and radioactive beauty of the desert. But Anna, raising her sea-green eyes to meet Joshua, read her composition mournfully, recalling the normal life back in Sarajevo, her hometown, before the war. People greeted one another on the street. The youth danced all night. There was a linden tree smelling sweetly and quaintly right under her window. He understood that her hot attire did not signify promiscuity, contrary to the consensual interpretation of the other male teachers, but a kind of nostalgia. This was what she used to wear when she was happy, when she used to live the normal life. She simply could not let go, just as Captain Soviet could not let go of his Cold War bullshit or body of her cancer. All bodies agree in certain things. Another thing I forgot to mention is this um, Joshua compulsively called Coates Spinoza, who is his favorite philosopher in the first secular Jew in history. So he, um, the quotes pop in his head. After this class, uh, Anna invites Joshua to her birthday party. And he comes up with an excuse for his girlfriend and he goes to the birthday party. What else? Anna lived way out in Lincolnwood, in a building that looked like a depressing dorm, what with its dun color and standard issue windows, but it was called the Ambassador. She buzzed him in, but didn't tell him her apartment number. On his way up, Joshua pressed his ear against suspect doors, each of which offered the sounds of myriad lives. A radio gibbering in an obscure language, Mexican umpa umpa music, a desperate barking dog, the hum of an empty space. Anna's place was up on the ambassador's top floor. There was a crowd of shoes in front of the door, lit dispiritingly by the skylight. Some were lined up, some thrown together, men's shoes, wide and deep and brown, Chuck Taylors, fine Italian leather shoes. There were women's high heels too, and flat ballet shoes, and even flower-patterned rain boots. Visions of the Holocaust shoe heaps came to Joshua, and in their wake a memory of Nana Elsa's Florida plastic flip-flops conforming to her bunions perfectly. She'd had them for at least 15 years and wouldn't hear of getting rid of them. In fact, she never got rid of any of her shoes. Papa Ellie disposed of them behind her back, so she never let her precious flip-flops out of sight. She wanted to be buried with those flip-flops. Nothing exists from whose nature some effect does not follow. Joshua took his tennis shoes off and placed them at a distance from all the others. Then it occurred to him that 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 might be interpreted as being a snob and move them a little closer, but still not touching any other shoes. 
He walked in somewhat embarrassed by his white tube socks, his grandmother's grandson. He too had a hard time getting rid of things. A teenage girl walked out of the bathroom, her purple shirt severely tucked into a pair of latex-tight jeans. She considered Joshua and said, Hi, with a lady-like nod. Hi, Joshua nodded back. She was lanky, her long mane brushing her skinny half pubescent behind. She had narrow, awkward-looking feet and a constellation of pimples on her chin, but she seemed to be at ease with herself. You could tell she was Anna's daughter. The same green eyes, the same long neck, the same, if unripe, sadness. I'm out of here, she said. You kids have loads of fun. Her English was purely American, no accent whatsoever. Should she not have a Bosnian accent? She slipped past Joshua, picked her shoes off the pile, and scuttered down the stairs. In Joshua's memory of his adolescence, there was no need to worry about the ease. He'd spent much of his teenagehood watching old movies in the basement, thus escaping the ubiquitous unease. In the center of the dining room, there was a long table, thick with plates of food and bottles of booze. Everyone crowded around it, teeming like wildflowers, no space between the chairs. On the far side of the table, Captain Ponomarenko and his faithful wife drowned in a sofa, their chins nearly touching the edge of the table. Bega was there too, fully present in his bad brains t-shirt, corona in hand, pontificating to women, slowly backing away as he leaned into her to make his indisputable points. What was he doing there? Had she invited people Joshua knew? Why would she do that? She had invited Stagger too, or so he claimed, to this party. Terrified, Joshua scanned the room. Apart from his students and Vega, everyone was comfortingly anonymous. He waved wordlessly at everyone, which everyone ignored. He stood at the door waiting for something to happen and determined what he should do next. Eventually he turned to go elsewhere and there was Anna behind him, her short hair so freshly henned as to approach purple, matching nicely her blue sky, sky blue summer dress and her cleavage beaded with sweat. She had a tray of thin sliced meat in her hands. Teacher Josh, she said, super to see you. She wriggled past him and he had an urge to grab her and keep her by his side. Her face was flushed and Joshua determined he should be hot as well. He wiped the imaginary sweat off his forehead with his hand and everyone laughed. I'm Joshua, he said, but no one bothered to introduce themselves. Bega finally raised his beard to greet him, then poured all of it into his mouth. What are you doing here? Joshua ventured to ask. Bosnia is small world, Bega said, and world is small Bosnia. And I live close. The rest of the guests raised their glasses except for Captain Ponomarenko and Larissa who hailed him with an ungenerous stare as if his arrival irreversibly spoiled the reigning harmony. Anna joked in her language with the people at the table and everybody neighed with laughter looking at him. They all appeared Eastern European, but he could not determine what exactly it was that made them so. The flat back of male heads, perhaps, or the dark circles around their eyes, or the abundance of defiantly unhealthy food, or the huddling around the table. On all other nights, we eat either sitting up or leaning back. On this night, we lean forward and giggle at strangers. Anna put a platter down and returned to him. What did you say to them? he asked. You don't know if you don't learn Bosnian, she said, and winked at him mischievously. Let me show you where, the, where is the kitchen. It wasn't clear why he needed to know where the kitchen was, but she touched him above the elbow to direct him, and his biceps rubbed against her breast. He could feel their fullness, their weighted maturity. Kimmy's breasts were small, somehow expressive of her control, as if she willfully prevented them from growing. So, you know Bega, Joshua said? Small world. I know him. He lives close. Captain Ponomarenko and Larissa are here too. They hate the thought of me. Yes, she frankly confirmed. But I like you. There was, there was the momentary purse of her lips and a flash of the dimples in her cheese, cheeks before she smiled, rendering Captain USSR and his wife harmless and irrelevant. She bespoke the supreme authority of the governing hostess. Everyone in her domain was going to be taken care of. Kimi had a similar quality, but her domain was spare. He and Bushi, the cat, were the only ones populating it. Anna pulled up her bra, and Joshua compliantly followed her to the kitchen. You know Bega? she asked. We're in the same writing, screenwriting workshop. What is workshop? Oh, we share our work with others and then talk shop about it. 
nice, she said, in a way that suggested that she understood what he was talking about. Kimi claimed that the workshop format had emerged at the same time as group therapy, but she hadn't experienced um, Joshua's workshop, which was as far from healing as can be. In the small kitchen, there was a man taking up half of the space. A cleaver in hand, he was dismembering what appeared to be a whole lamb stretched on a plank, its eyes about to pop out in roasted surprise. Whenever the man brought the cleaver down, everything on the counter leapt up and the lamb raised its head. Barbed wire was tattooed in a circle around the man's neck as if to keep his head and body segregated. Anna said something to the man and he revolted to give her, give her an angry look, responding with a word that to Joshua sounded gutturally ugly. The man did not look at Joshua once, waving the cleaver around as he was getting wound up about something. Anna stood between Joshua and the door, blocking off the retreat route, so he looked around the kitchen with feigned interest. A calendar from a butcher shop on the wall, a cuckoo clock with weights, and then an unmoving pendulum, the spice rack, spiceless. He nodded as if to show his admiration for the simple human ambition of the kitchen. The Levin syndrome, always seeing himself from someone else's point of view, as if in a movie. Finally, mercifully, Anna said, this is Esco, my husband. Pleasure to meet you, Esco, Joshua said. I'm Joshua. Esco moved the cleaver from his right to his left hand, as if considering shaking Joshua's hand, still saying nothing. His jaw was wide and not only unshaven, but layered with unshavenness. A big blackish wart protruded from the depths of his hirsute cheek. Joshua understood at first glance that Esco disliked him. I'm Anna's English teacher, he said unnecessarily. Good, the man said and returned to cleaver, the cleaver to his right hand. A scene presented itself to Joshua. Esco grabbing his right hand, carelessly offered for a shake, then swinging the cleaver and slicing it off, the blood spraying the kitchen walls. Instead, Esco went back to dismembering the lamb, the splinters of meat flying about excitedly. My husband was born in a boat, she said. Oh, really, Joshua said. That's fascinating. That's what we say in Bosnia when somebody doesn't know how to be nice. That's okay, Joshua said. All of his utterances felt wrong, as if English suddenly were a language foreign to him. Esco placed the lamp's head on the board, complete with its grotesquely googly eyes, and split it in two with one powerful blow. He picked up a piece of the brain with a cleaver and licked it off the blade. Born in an abattoir, he was more likely. It is not okay. He was not really born in boat. He, he's from good city family. She was upset, he realized. He's my second husband, she said, which Joshua elected to understand as not my first choice. <laughs> she was grinding her teeth, snorting instead of breathing. He had an urge to put his arms around her and squeeze her hard just to see how strong she was. She made choices. She was strong. But there were no cheek dimples in sight. I like your place, Joshua said helplessly. Go look around, she said. He slipped past her out into the hallway, but there was little to look at. He could hear Anna speaking to Esco with restrained fury, riddled with hard Eastern European consonants. Obediently, he opened the first door, and it was the bathroom, towels, mirror, moldy dampness. He opened another one, and it was their bedroom. The bed was unruly, as if sex had just been had in it. Chairs covered the clothes, the smell of married bodies. A tower of books stood on, to one side, on top of which the textbook Let's Go America 5, uh, on top of which was Let's Go America 5. On the closet door handle, there were her bras, bundled like scalps. As a kid, Joshua had thoroughly searched his parents' bedroom whenever they'd gone away. He'd frisked his father's inside suit pockets, finding condoms. He'd looked through his mother's dresser drawer, dug through her bras and underwear. He'd gone through their documents, bills, bank statements, letters to lawyers. He'd kept tabs on them. He'd found out unmentionable things. He'd known well before Rachel that Bernie had been fucking Constance on the sly. He closed the door. It's crazy messy, Anna said right behind him. There was only one more door to open. A handwritten sign on it said, Welcome to hell. <laughs> Anna <coughs> played
placed him at the head of the table so that everyone now regarded him with expectation as if he were supposed to conduct a workshop or affirm his authority by delivering a salutation of some sort. No authority, however, was affirmed except for Anna's as she went around the table introducing all of her guests. Their names consisted entirely of unpronounceable sounds, therefore incomprehensible and impossible to remember. When she got to Bega, he said something that made her laugh. We go way back, Bega said in English and winked. The woman sitting next to Bega was Anna's boss, it turned out, and she was Russian. She had coal black hair and biblically dark eyes, which made her appear very young. Joshua hadn't even known Anna worked, but he refrained from inquiring. Everyone at the table was now quiet, still waiting for Joshua to say something, and he couldn't think of a single word to utter. Everything excellent is as difficult as it is rare. In the meantime, Anna packed a plate and set it down before him. Little bit of everything, she said. When Esco walked in with a pile of lamb on a platter, she picked a boneless piece for Joshua and dropped it on his plate, to which everyone responded with an appreciative, Oh. <laughs> what do you want to drink? Bega asked. There is everything. I like wine, Joshua said, before he saw what was on the table. There was little doubt. He looked like a snob. And thus he drank some over-oxidized wine, and he was vile. But people talked at him, and he could not fend off their foreign bladder without alcohol, and he drank a lot of it. Oxidation be damned. <laughs> Anna was seated next to him, their thighs rubbing. It seemed that she was looking for ways to touch him surreptitiously, and mind, he did not. She refilled his glass with a dreadful wine while she sipped Johnny Walker. Esco came in occasionally to bring more food or another bottle of booze, but he pretty much spent the evening in the kitchen. There was a cloud over his head, and everyone quieted down whenever he came by. He doesn't like parties, Anna told Joshua by way of explanation, because he doesn't like people. Earth is populated with reasons not to like people, Joshua said. He's a wild man. I think I ran into your daughter on my way in, Joshua said, mainly to change the subject. Oh, yes, Alma, I'm worried about her, Anna said. Drugs, sex, crazy people. I don't know her friends. Where is she going? I think we maybe must go back to Sarajevo. She'll be fine, Joshua said. Teenagers have a lot of energy. Energy is not good for mother, Anna said. Mother gets tired. Joshua arranged an empathetic face to signal that he understood. The arrangement required raised eyebrows and lips rolled in. He could feel his forehead muscles straining. The easiest thing would be just to hug her or hold her hand. Kimmy liked to snuggle up and put her head on the side of his chest to listen to his heartbeat. He often worried she could smell his armpit. You are too young to get tired. She laughed. How old do you think I am? Thirty, Joshua ventured. Thirty or five or thirty-seven, really, maybe even forty, but he knew better than to say it. She pressed her hands against her cheeks and said, I can kiss you for that. Bega was ranting forcefully about something in Bosnia and occasionally sitting up to loom over the table while everyone except Anna's boss and the Ponomarenkos convulsed in laughter. Joshua's plate defeated him with his demanding foreignness. Apart from lamb, bread, and tomatoes, he did not know what any of those things were. Some were yummy, some bitter, all confusing in their combination of unfamiliar tastes. What am I eating? he asked her. She pointed at things and named them in Bosnian, and he kept trying to repeat the words. There was no hope. Bosnian sounded like Hebrew spoken by someone with a debilitating speech impediment, but he enjoyed watching her mouth. The lips that could make those sounds must be very soft. Those lips were certainly not 40, but younger, much younger. Their naming game kept, kept them apart from the rest of the table. Joshua could see Bega glancing over, even in the middle of his performance, and he made sure his body was at an angle in relation to hers that prevented their circle from completely closing. He considered calling Kimi and reporting as if from a far-off land about all this, the strange language, the strange food, the strange people, all this, that is, except Anna's body. In any case, as far as Kimi was concerned, he was at the movies watching Touch of Evil yet again. His throat narrowed around the returning lump. He took in her jasmine smell and her over-manicured nails and watched the veins on her hand and her long fingers and imagined kissing it all. No one can desire to be blessed, to act well, or to live well unless at the same time he desires to be, to act, and to live, that is, to actually exist. 
Whenever Anna's husband reappeared, Joshua tried for eye contact with him so as to exhibit his honesty and innocence, thereby covering up his humming desire. I can kiss you for that, she had said. Right after Anna blew out the candle, her lips immaculately pouted on the chocolate happy birthday cake. The Ponomarenkos left, then some other consonant clusters departed, and then Joshua had to stand up to let Anna's boss out. Her name was Zosia. He found out as she thrust her limp, cold hand into his. She owned a chocolate shop and was Jewish. Anna told him as if those two things were connected. Joshua showed interest but could not go as far as to own up to his own Jewishness. Somehow, he demanded complicated fine-tooth qualifications, though he did own up to liking chocolate. Anna walked her out and Joshua could see Zosia stroking her cheek before kissing her goodbye. Now there was more space at the table and when Anna came back she sat a little farther from Joshua. Bega seemed to have started a new story. He spoke slowly at first, taking sips from another corona, but then he sped up and raised his voice until he was shouting, banging the table with his hand. The more commandingly he talked, the more his audience laughed. The skinny, gray-haired man at the far end fell off his chair laughing and was now on his knees, holding his stomach. Anna was clapping her hands as she laughed, throwing her head back, thrusting her bosom out. What is he talking about? Joshua asked her. He deployed a non-specific grin so as to participate in the general merriment, waiting for her to regain composure. But Anna could not stop laughing. Finally, she said, still chuckling, very hard to translate. Come on, Joshua pleaded. She looked at him as if trying to decide whether he was worth the effort. I can kiss you for that, she had said. Joshua held his breath. All the dubious flirting, all the body positioning, all the surreptitious touches, the reality and the value of it all seemed to depend presently on whether she would try to translate the joke. Come on, he said. Maybe, she said, maybe it will not be funny. Let's just give it a shot, she said. Okay, she said. Bega stopped talking. A skinny man got off the floor and reclined in his chair. They all wanted to see how Anna would do, how Joshua would react to her translation. One old man in Bosnia, Anna said, he liked his mobitel. Cell phone, Bega said. He liked his cell phone so much, Anna continued, that he asked his son to go to grave with it when he dies. So old man dies, and his son respects his wish. But his grandson steals SIM card, Cell phone chip, Bega said. Shut up, Joshua thought. Cell phone chip before funeral and puts it in his phone. So they put him in the ground. They cover him with earth. Bega and others seemed wrapped. They kept nodding in approval, encouraging her. Joshua was all ready to laugh, so, so eager for the rendition to work out. Anna giggled and took a nervous sip of Johnny Walker. But grandson sends text to his father. Text comes. It looks like it comes from old man. It says, I arrived to other world. <laughs> his son goes crazy. Text from other world. Joshua chortled, hoping this was not it. Anna seemed out of breath as if she had been running. This was not unlike an exam for her. She had stage fright. He had seen it before. Her stuttering, the rise at the end of a difficult word, as if she was reaching for it, the thought in her eyes as she parsed possibilities, her dramatic breath intake. He realized he was attracted to her striving, to her struggle to survive. I can kiss you for that. But then, Anna inhaled and exhaled, best friend of all the men dies. His name is Fikret, and he has funeral. Before the funeral, grandson sends text message to his father, please send phone charger with Fikret. <laughs> True story. Everyone laughed, but nowhere near as much as when they heard it in Bosnian. The skinny man certainly didn't fall off the chair. Joshua laughed too, but his laughter was devoid of the abandon he had witnessed in the Bosnians. Anna didn't laugh at all. She just shrugged, as if to say that she'd done her best and it wasn't her fault. She finished her glass of whiskey. Hard to translate, the skinny man said. They sat in silence for a while. When Bega restarted the conversation in Bosnian, it was serene, as if the mistranslated joke had reminded him how sad and displayed they really were. History. The first time a joke, the second time a badly translated joke. 
Joshua was now the only one in the room not speaking the language, but he could not leave, as if that would violate the sacred impenetrability of Bega's words. A woman with dyed blonde hair and a chest armor of necklaces listened for a while and then started crying, pressing her face against the skinny man's shoulder to sob mutely. Anna saw it but said nothing, nor did she offer to translate it for Joshua. It was not unlike watching a movie. He was simultaneously there and absent, present, but not responsible for any of it. Anna was sitting close to him again, and he could feel the warmth of her thigh, the deep vibrations of her flesh, the hum of her blood on its way to her heart. I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you. I'd be happy to take your questions, should you have any. Otherwise, we'll just stand in silence. Yes. How long did it take me? What? I'm sorry? Well, it depends how we define the inception point. It didn't take me long to, you know, put the words on, on the paper and the computer. But the inception was many years ago when a, a student of mine in an ESL uh, class I was teaching offered to essentially have an affair with me. She was married and and had a a husband who, I don't know if he was crazy, I never met him. Um, But she was. (laughs) (laughs) So so I declined the offer. But then I kept thinking what that would have been like. Um, She was uh, very good looking. But what the logistics of such a thing would have been like. Uh, And I I was confident that I would have screwed up somewhere along the way, you know, because I'm not good at lying unless I'm writing fiction. but, it, you know, it, I kept thinking about this situation, how this, uh, a thing like that, an affair like that, would have unfolded. And so at some point, many years later, 15 years later, I wrote a story in which that kind of an affair was um, the main event. And then that story expanded into this book after some stops and starts and, you know, discoveries. Um, and that, that story I wrote in, I think, 2000. Um, 11 I think so, yeah Yes, sir I remember reading the, this article you wrote about, uh, uh, about the film industry so at what point did that begin to begin this idea? Well, I had written a script so I was interested in you know screenwriting um, but more importantly I was interested in um, in comedy, because the script that I co-wrote with a friend of mine, we determined it would be comedy. Um, and comedy in the sense that, you know, the, the, I re- figured out that the stakes in comedy are high, because if people don't laugh, it's dead. There's no, there's no second chance. No one laughs at a joke a week later or ten days later. Um, you know, whereas you can think of um, a difficult, as they call it, book or film, you know, for a while, and not even liking it at first view or read, and then sometimes, sometimes later, somehow, the idea takes root, and you can return to it, and so on. So I like that. that I like the idea of taking that risk. See how how long it can be funny. And of course, the risk of writing funny stuff is like being a surgeon. You know, you lose some people on the table, as it were. <laughs> Um, so there's that terrifying aspect, but I like doing that. In any case, I wanted to, I wanted um, not to write a script for this, but rather have a character who would fret over all these possibilities one way or another. And in pursuit of that, I took a screenwriting workshop just as a kind of research and also to see if I could develop a plot by cranking out pages for the workshop every week. Um, and so then it, it seeped in that way from a very, very low level, um, you know, amateur screenwriting level rather than some kind of industry experience level because this is very rinky-dinky in terms of film industry. It's Chicago after all. Yes? So I actually just find that this book is um, plotted a little bit like a movie in the classic just terms of the action really wraps up and it just becomes this like mad cap uh, climax. So um, just compared to some of your other stuff that develops more slowly and a little more unpredictable. So I wanted to ask, did you 
plotted sort of ahead to time certain occurrences because they really do um, just amplify so much? Or did you kind of go and see where each scene would take you from day to day? Well, when I was writing, writing a script in this workshop, and I, I was just cranking out pages without you know, spending too much time on language, or any time on language, really, because it was you know final draft of software. We just write prose and dialogue. It's very quick and easy. Um, but I want to do it fast. And I, in previous books, um, I, I mean, I, I love doing them, but I was my primary focus was language. I was getting at it through by way of language. And here I was wanted to get through the, to the book, as it were, by way of, of the plot. But the plot I could not conceive of before I started writing. So I was, you know, one week I would write a scene, but I didn't really know exactly what the next scene would be. But within a week I would come up with something. So at the end of this workshop, after eight weeks, I had an outline for the book in form of a script minus the the ending i didn't want to know the ending because there would be it would, then it would have been it would have been less exciting for me to figure out how they're going to get out of this situation um, and also all the Bosnian characters were actually russian so this scene would have been entirely all russian i mean all the characters were russian other than josh because i wanted to deal with the Bosnian thing in the book in language and, and so on. so after this these eight weeks i had a I was developing that story into a script, the story that I uh, about the affair that I wrote, and I mean there was a starting point, and I um, turned it into an outline, a script that was an outline for this book, and so that's how I came up with the plot. The earlier books uh, were not plotted at all; they were rather, there were situations and stories, and there were you know, in the Lazarus project, there was a space to cover, as it were, uh, and so I would move through that space and, and explore the situations. But they were far less causally related, various parts of the book here. From the event A, event B follows. From the event B, event C follows. And so on, until there are no more events. Um, so, yeah, I like doing that. It was, it was exciting. I admire people who plot. It's very difficult. Yes? Well, those were the happiest days of you know contemporary America <laughs> when we're invading countries, and it was all a cakewalk and before everything went downhill, and it's still going downhill. I like well, there were several reasons. One of them was precisely the madness of the invasion days when uh, a lot of people were crazy about the invasion and the rest were crazy that, about the fact that we're actually doing this fucking thing. Are you out of your mind? Is what I thought every day of my life around that time. Um, but also, it's a kind of gift to a, a plotting novelist um, that the invasion, exact, the beginning of the invasion exactly coincided with Passover in Cedar. And so that um, you know, the whole subset of myths, the promised land, the mess- messianic salvation and all this could be easily activated just by, without much stretching and without any historical falsification. And so I wanted, you know, to drop Joshua in, in the middle of it all. I mean, books like this, unless they're taking place in the future, some undefined time they have to be dropped in some historical period and so one finds a period that means most right? so that was what it was I was really upset at the time and still am about the whole project the whole operation Iraqi freedom and they're enjoying it you can tell from afar right now the freedom um, I first uh, By Bernard Malamud? Yeah. Uh, and you had mentioned later on how you feel very uncomfortable reading his English as your second language. Have you become more comfortable reading? Well, I have. I've, I've been doing it, doing it for a while. Um, but it's a, it's a sort of challenging discomfort. It's not that I suffer. It is, you know, I'm never comfortable enough to think I can just sleep through this or sail through this. It is always an effort to um, not embarrass myself uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, to get the audience involved in, in some way. Um, um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm not entirely comfortable, but also I don't, I don't suffer. And I hope I never become entirely comfortable. Um, so, 
I always, and this happens in my native language now, and this has advantages. I, I hear myself speaking. Um, and so there's always an out, I hear my, there's an ear, uh, my own ear listening to what I say. Um, and that also, um, maybe an inadvertent consequence of that is that I hear the music, even if it's a little mistuned, the instrument is a little mistuned, I hear the music of, of the language that I'm using. And because, um, I, it happens to me in Bosnia now too. It doesn't mean that I, I worry that I'm misspeaking in Bosnian English. I just hear it because there's an increased sensitivity to that, which I can, which I'm aware of now. It may have always been the case, but now I'm aware of it. This is such a departure from your other books um, as far as the genre, uh, away from um, writing a, a script or a script or a comedy. What, uh, what were some of the comedies that Um, well, you know, I, I there are a few books that I, I like. Don Quixote, which is a, you know the ultimate comedy with a hapless main character who is deluded and you know stumbles further into disaster with every chapter, and yet and there's a, you know Sancho Panza next to him. It's the it's a parody of a picaresque novel that is also a picaresque novel on a different level, and I like that. Uh, structure. Um, I was reading Don Quixote, and not for this book, but around the time of working um, on this book, rereading a new translation, and it just you know you can you suddenly I recognize what where it all comes from in many ways. So not just this book, but many 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 other books. So much it's one of the foundational texts, I think, of contemporary literature or uh, Western literature. Um, so that that is one of those things, and it's also in, except in Don Quixote, it's all episodic, so it doesn't. There, there are no events A, an event. There are no event, There's no event A and event B and event C, strictly causally related. He sort of he can't even control his own plot. So, so uh, that's one of the things. Um, other than that, I like books with humor. To me, the absence a humorless writer. There are very very few humorless writers who can actually pull it off. Because to me, it's always a symptom of a shortage of imagination. Not that you know I'm triumphantly funny, but attempting to be funny is essential to um, relating to people and, and language. Not all the time, not always, but somewhere there, you know, the life is funny as it is tragic. And so, people who, who always try to be just funny, uh, they get boring. But also, people who always try, who always confront the disaster of life, they also get boring. Very few people can actually be entirely funny or entirely um, depressing. So, which I, I admire them for the, those for their efforts. Yes. Oh, I was reading. <laughs> I was reading um, Haldor Laxness, the Icelandic writer, who won the Nobel Prize in the fifties, World Light, which is marvelous. I was reading. I was rereading Edward P. Jones, Lost in the City, which was great. Um, I was also starting to read uh, Limonov by Emmanuel Carré, the French writer about a Russian crazy fascist anarchist writer, Edward Limonov. I was also reading a book about uh, Breivik, the Norwegian who shot up those kids on an island, Utoya. Um, that was not for pleasure, exactly. I mean, it was out of curiosity. It wasn't a job, but it was not. it's not exactly pleasurable to read that. So, yeah, I read all the time. Um, one, the only upside of flying and traveling is that my phone is turned off and I don't have to just check soccer scores so I can read continuously. So... Yes. Um, and do you also at least periodically write in Well, there's a difference in that when I write, I don't write fiction in Bosnia, and so what I write is what we would call nonfiction. It's a column, um, so it's a particular format, and it's you know a thousand words, and it's also um, it used to be published in a magazine, but now it's online. So it's it's a different audience and also different medium and different um, expiration date, right? It's it's gone after a little while. Um, but other than that, I, I cannot detect any difference. It's, I think it's the same mind, just two languages. 
I, I do not see the difference. And the referential systems are somewhat different because, you know, Bosnian language and this particular audience that might read this is much smaller. And I have to footnote Bosnian jokes, but then I do have to explain things that are self-evident um, in the United States, you know, um, which I don't have to do in English. I don't think at all, most of the time. Um, I don't know. I don't pay attention to it anymore. Um, I think to write creatively um, with sustained intensity, the language has to be part of one's subconscious mind with one's native language that you know happens at an early age. But for some reason or another, uh, the English language became part of my subconscious mind. I don't have to struggle to retrieve a word or to translate while speaking or writing. It just comes out. And so in that sense, it's the same thing. I mean, there might be a difference, but I cannot detect it. Someone from the outside would have to do it. Yes? So when you were writing a screenplay, did you feel any kind of different muscles kind of activated? Did you approach writing in the same way, or did you try to visualize it more? Um, and did you like it? Did you want to write more screenplays, or...? Well, I mean, it was different in that it was mainly dialogue. You know, there's one of the rules, of screen, basic rules of screenwriting, is that you whatever cannot be seen is there's no place in the screenplay. So there's no poetry in language, except maybe in dialogue. Did that free you in some way? Huh? Did that free you in some way? Well, it did temporarily. I don't aim to write that like that for the rest of my life. But it was when you know, and I could write write that and some other things at the same time that were all about language. Um, but it did change um, the dynam- dynamic of writing, the production of, of the text, and I like that. It's not how I used to do things before. It was, it was, I mean, I did when I was writing a script, but when developing a novel, I was moving through it really fast. It's really, really fast to write in final draft because of the software, but also because I was not trying to find the exactly right word. I would just keep moving through it because I knew there were several steps before I actually turn it into any kind of prose. So it, it, you know, it was more relaxing. Um, it was like, I don't know, in terms of music, I was just strumming the chords, and sometime down the road, I would, you know, have the whole orchestra playing. So. Are you interested in, in writing more? Not particularly. I mean, I enjoy doing it, but I don't... It, well, I, this was not, you know, a film project. It was a it was always a literary project and so I just used the tool the way I used photos in the Lazarus project you know I'm no more interested in uh, writing scripts than I was interested in taking pictures or having a photographer follow me while I write a book uh, in any way so I, I changed I changed methods and when I produce books next one who knows it, it might require a symphony orchestra that would be expensive but it would be nice Yes. Uh, I read the last project a couple years ago, which was a really, really book. Thank you. Well, in the Lazarus project, I mean, it's based on a on a historical story that featured a Jewish character, and therefore, and not therefore, but with, you know, in in, in anti-Semitism of the time and all that, and so all that had to be part of the story. Could not be converted to any other ethnicity. It's a particular historical context. In this situation, um, I wanted an American-born character, but because of Passover around the time of the invasion and. Uh, um, you know uh, the the stories and narratives and, and mythology that comes with with uh, with Passover and uh, and the, the biblical stories. I wanted that activated. So there were ways. You know, if, if it was a an atheist character, although he's atheist strictly speaking, but um, someone who had no no um, religious tradition to even touch slightly, that this would not work. A Christian tradition is a whole different story, and so on. So it's in some ways it's. It's not quite an elimination process, but because I didn't really, you know, interview all those religions for for the book, it just presented itself easily. Um, and also, there's Spinoza. You know, Spinoza works in a particular way. There's also I wanted in some ways to tap into um, 
uh, a, a, a American tradition, uh, uh, the tradition of Jewish American writers in Malibu and in various ways with the various nefarious purposes, you know, Philip Roth and, and so on. So they, they feature uh, some of some of that tradition overlaps with the tradition of you know the narratives of male entitlement, uh, and I, I wanted Joshua to um, have some connection with that. Yes. I imagine in writing um, the, the book of my lives that you put you in a position to be sort of like a tourist or a translator to your own life, and I'm wondering if some of those observations and from Joshua later, uh, I also imagine that after writing memoirs, sometimes it's like, enough about me, what do you think about me? So <laughs> to be kind of a vessel for that. Well, there's inherent self-indulgence in writing a memoir because you, you know, you, you you assume that whatever whatever you say is going to be interesting, as it were. That there's no need for embellishment or or you know work developing more complicated narratives, and, and that's not a reason not to do it. Um, so there's I was aware of that as I was doing it, and I was trying to avoid it while writing. I wrote the book of my lives in pieces, so it was not a sustained effort. But I was aware of it, and I, as I was aware, as uh, I'm aware still. The tradition of confess, the self-centeredness that is uh, present in American culture and, and is also expressed, also expressible, also in, in, in memoir, right? And so Joshua suffers from this kind of self-centeredness, which he doesn't really know what to do with. It doesn't really empower him. He just cannot see outside of, you know, like a proverbial drunk who looks for the keys under the light because that's the only place where there is light when the keys might be somewhere else. So to explore his um, self. Domain is something he's forced into. Having said this, in the Lazarus project, the Bosnian character Brick is much the same. He's a naval gazer who has um, intellectual agency. That is, he thinks a lot, but he doesn't really do anything. The agency is um, um, owned by some other people in that book and then in, the book, in this book too. So they, they, that experience, I mean, I didn't learn to think about that with the, the book of my lives. But I was writing a book of my life for a long time, and, and so uh, it did inform me in some way. Not the, I mean, it's not that I, you know, had notes made after writing the book of my life that I could just de- apply while writing this book. It's mainly confusion while one is writing a book. It's only after it's done that I understand what it was and how it was done and why it was done. All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.